If you would, grab a Bible, turn with me to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. It's where we'll begin our time of study this morning. Mark chapter 5. Good to see we have visitors with us. We want you to know that we're glad that you're here. Thank you for being here. We want you to feel welcome among us. Always good to see our members who are more expected, and sometimes we take each other for granted, but it's good to just be, be with you and to be among you. It's been good for me to be in worship with you this morning already. Mark chapter 5, I want to begin reading this little story beginning in verse 22. Mark 5 and verse 22. It says, Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. And he went with them. And we'll drop down in the story to verse 35. It says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. We can get to know people through stories where we learn about them by seeing the way they act in different situations. And so for the last several weeks, we've been doing that with Jesus, re-examining the stories of Jesus to get to know him better. And you've probably noticed I've been, and I mention this every time just because I want you to know, I know that I'm doing this. I am preaching a little bit differently where we're not studying and turning to each passage and looking through each story, but I'm trying to tell the stories so that we can get a feel for the details instead of getting so lost in the study part of it. My goal in this series has been for us to be able to answer the question, if we walked with Jesus, what would we notice? What would be memorable about him? What would stick out so that we can know those things about him, though we don't walk with him physically? And this morning, we're going to finish up that series by talking about how Jesus relates to death. I think we would notice if we were one of Jesus' disciples walking with him, the way Jesus talked about and dealt with death. And the way we're going to summarize that this morning is just to talk about how Jesus conquers death, similar to what we just sung in the song that we sang, over death he had conquered. So we would see Jesus. Jesus acts differently when the topic of death comes up. He acts differently than other people we know when other people die, and he has to deal with those graveside services. He also acts differently when he faces his own death. And so it's important for us to know what that looks like and why he is that way because we can then have confidence in the victory Jesus has had over death himself. Death is that awful part of life that all of us are slated to face. It is appointed to man once to die and after this the judgment. But we are afraid of it. And in fact, all the other fears that we have usually are variations on the basic fear. That is the fear of death. So we're afraid of a lot of things because those things might mean we get closer to death. We're afraid of certain sicknesses because they can lead to death. 
Or we're afraid of aging because it appears that we're getting closer to death. And we're afraid of accidents and things we can't control because they might cause our death. But all of those seem to radiate from this one basic fear. And Jesus, in the face of death, says things like, Do not fear, only believe. And that kind of confidence can help us. I think that this is what we would notice most if we were around Jesus. That that fear is not the way he lived. He spoke with the authority of one who has the power over death. So let's look at that for a few minutes this morning. First, Jesus claims power over death. So in the story that we've just read, there is a man who is a ruler in the synagogue. He is a well-respected local man of God, but he has a daughter who has become very sick. So he reaches out to Jesus. This would have been notable in itself because Jesus was a little bit of a renegade. And yet he says, Jesus, you can heal my daughter. And so he sends to him. And so as he goes, a great crowd starts to form as they know where Jesus is going and what he's going to do. And in the meantime, a woman who has a hemorrhage touches his garment. She is healed. Jesus stops the crowd. And we have this whole other story. So while Jesus is sorting all of that out, another servant comes from the house and says, it's too late. Your daughter is dead. Leave Jesus alone. Don't trouble him anymore. And this is the way people treat Jesus, by the way. We'll see another story where the same thing happens. They believe Jesus can heal up to the point of death. Now, when somebody's sick, Jesus can heal the sickness and reverse everything. But once they cross the line of death, you know, there's no hope. Don't bother Jesus anymore. There's nothing he can do. It's too late. And so they don't feel that Jesus has any power when death is involved. By the way, we're still that way, aren't we? Okay, when, when we get sick, when we need help, we'll pray and we'll go to the doctor and we'll do everything to try to get better But once someone dies, we don't say, let's keep praying for them. We don't say, let's go to the the hospital. What else can you do? We know that that's the line you don't cross, but not for Jesus. So Jesus turns to the man and he says, do not fear, only believe. And on they go to the house. And there is this great commotion in the house. Everybody is there weeping and wailing because this young girl has died. It is a tragedy. And it has just happened. It is so fresh. And Jesus turns to the crowd and he says, What is all this noise? The girl isn't dead. She's asleep. Now, I don't know about you. I I know we probably all had some experience dealing with a grieving family. That's something you don't do. You don't go into the grieving family and say, oh, you're all wrong. The person's not really dead. But that's what Jesus does because, of course, he has a power over death. And he walks in just with the, the young girl's family and with a couple of his apostles And he speaks to the little girl, get up, and up she comes. So Jesus can heal the sick, but when they go on and die, he can still, still heal them. He claims power over death by saying things like, don't be afraid, just believe. I think we would notice that, don't you? If we walked with Jesus and we discovered that he had the power to raise the dead, I think we might pay attention to that fact. And then I think we would notice how Jesus constantly talks about life and death over and over again in his teaching. He talks about living water and eternal life and resurrection and new birth. The Son of Man must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment. He has passed from death to life. Unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. 
And those words, those claims that we're talking about where Jesus can say, I have the power to give out life and death, they got him into trouble with his fellow Jews. There is one situation where he says something like what we've just been saying. He says, truly I say to you, if anyone keeps my words, he will never see death. And the Jews start to say, now wait a minute. I heard what you said, and that doesn't make any sense. Never see death. And they say, oh, really? Well, you know, Abraham died, and the prophets died. Just who do you think you are? You're going to give somebody the power to live longer than Abraham and the prophets? You, the carpenter from Nazareth? And Jesus says, you know, Abraham rejoiced to see me come. Oh, and that gets them, oh, 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 you are not even 50. Have you seen Abraham? You talked to him? Yeah, what did he say? I assume they're talking to him in the tone of voice you would use with somebody who's a little off. And Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And now the eyes get wide. I picture there being silence because have you ever been in a situation where somebody says something and you're like, oh, I know they did not just say that. He just said, I am. That's what God says about God. That's his name. And he says, not only is he saying, I lived before Abraham, but he's saying, I just exist. I am like God. And so they begin to gather stones to stone Jesus for blasphemy, and he hides himself from them. Jesus claims to have power over death. And the claims that he makes about himself are so audacious that they often irritate the Jews. I think we would notice that. In fact, if we were disciples, we would probably say, Jesus, why do you keep saying things like that? You know, let's just, maybe that's true, but let's just hold off on that. It's making everybody mad and they want to stone you and it's really keeping us from doing the things you're trying to do. But Jesus has these claims because he wants to know, he wants people to know who he is and the power that he has. And he doesn't just make those claims about other people. He also claims power over death himself, that he himself is going to live forever. And I really think, I, I was thinking about this this week because I had another experience. I want to share it with you because I think it will, it will help illustrate just how we would have responded were we in this situation. So I've been doing some writing lately, and I joined a Facebook group for authors, and it's our authors all over the world, and so you kind of get this large swath of humanity. And uh, just the other day, this one man who lives in Cameroon, he said that in four years, he will be the greatest creative writer of all time in the inhabited earth. I don't know what that means about the uninhabited earth, but that's his claim. Greatest creative writer of all time on earth. And what do we, what do we think when we hear things like that? I'll tell you what I did. I, I chuckled. I laughed. I, I looked at, well, what did people say about that? Did anybody call him out on that? Because that's just ridiculous. Sometimes people say things, and we just say, that's so ridiculous. I don't, I'm not even going to entertain it. I, I don't even need to think about all the ways that that's wrong. And I believe that's the way we would respond if somebody were to say, you know what? I'm never going to die. Now, with that in mind, I want to remind you of what Jesus said about himself. Jesus said, I lay down my life that I may take it again. I have the power to lay down my life, and I have the power to take it again. Or when he says repeatedly, over and over again to the disciples, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be killed, 
And on the third day, I will rise again. It is so preposterous that the people around him don't believe it and the disciples don't seem to understand or believe it either. There's a lot of reasons for that. But that claim is so far beyond the bounds of what you and I experience that it's, it's audacious to the point of absurdity for us. And I want us to see that's the kind of thing Jesus says. And if we were walking with them, it might be that we say, you know what? That was a weird one. I didn't get that, that teaching. Oh, well, I'll, I'll just wait for the next one. And then you get the next one. Okay, I understood that one a little better. But then you hear him say it again and again and again, things like this again and again. And, and slowly there is this buildup of all of these claims where Jesus says, I have authority here that you may not understand. Jesus claims power over death. Second, Jesus gives life to other people. It's not just about claims. There are times where Jesus validates the claims by proof that he has power over death. So, one day Jesus is traveling to a town. He's got a big crowd with him, and they meet a big crowd. And this crowd from the town is coming out, and at the head of it is a weeping woman. This is a funeral procession. And on the stretcher is her only son. And Jesus comes to her, and what's notable about this woman is not just that she's burying her only son, but that she has already buried her husband. She is a widow, and now she is completely alone. And Jesus must have understood this all in a glance, because the text says that he felt compassion for her. And he says to her, don't weep. And we would say, you know what, that's, that's really sweet. Here's Jesus, he sees this woman, he doesn't know. He sees that she's sad, he's trying to comfort her. But this is where the story goes a step beyond. It's not just that Jesus is a sudden guest at a funeral and he acts very graciously. That's not the story. The story is that he walks up to the stretcher that they have the young man laying on. And he touches the stretcher, which, by the way, means instant defilement if you were a Jew. And touches the stretcher. And he looks at the young man. The Jews didn't bury in coffins where the body is enclosed. He just looks at the young man as he's laying there. And he says, young man, get up. And he gets up and starts talking. And he takes him and gives him to his mom. Problem solved. Funeral's over. Everybody go home. Of course the people are amazed, aren't they? We would be amazed. Jesus has given life in response to a need. He feels compassion, but he doesn't just feel compassion and say, I wish there was something I could do. There is something he can do because Jesus has power over death. He gives life in response to need. Jesus, at a later time, hears that his friend Lazarus is sick. And he stays where he is until a few days later he knows that Lazarus has died and he finally decides to go visit. And as he approaches where Lazarus lived, Martha, his sister, comes out to him and she says to him, Lord, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. See, it's the same thought, isn't it? Jesus, you could have healed him, but now it's too late. You were late, you stayed where you were, and now we all have to suffer as a result. This is a tragedy And it's a little bit your fault. Well, Jesus tells Martha, well, you know what? Your brother will rise again. And she says, oh, I know. He'll rise again at the last day. Someday we'll be together again. You know, sometimes we say things like that at a funeral. 
Someday we'll see them again. And Jesus says, no, I am the resurrection and the life. If you, if you believe, you'll never die. He who lives and believes in me will never die. Well, Martha goes back and gets Mary, her sister Mary, comes out to meet him. And Mary says to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She believes the same thing. But not only that, Mary is frustrated and disappointed and a little angry, and she begins to cry. And that affects Jesus. It says that he is stirred up in his soul. There is something within him that is affected by this, a compassion. So they go to the tomb, and as, as Jesus sees Mary and he sees the other Jews that are also upset because of what's happened to Lazarus, Jesus begins to cry. I think we would notice this, don't you? Jesus begins to cry. And then a little later it says again, he is stirred up in his spirit. And everybody is probably whispering, I wonder if he could have saved him. Look how much he loved him. And they come to the tomb. Sort of like this. A cave with a stone rolled over it. And Jesus says, take the stone away. And here Martha says, whoa, whoa, Jesus, Jesus. We don't need to do that. He's been dead for four days. It's going to stink. It's going to be kind of an embarrassing thing for all of us. We don't want that. Don't roll the stone away. And Jesus says, didn't I tell you if you believe you'll see the glory of God? He kind of wishes Martha away. Take the stone away. And they take the stone away. And he prays, Father, I thank you that you've heard me and what you're about to do. And he says, Lazarus, come out. And out of the tomb walks the man, bound with his grave clothes. If we walked with Jesus, I wonder if we would notice. Don't you think it would jump out? That he's able to do not just amazing things like walk on the water, not just amazing things like feed the 5,000 with five loaves. What Jesus can do is reverse the things that we could never imagine being reversed. He can speak to the dead and the dead come forth. So now, what begins to happen for the apostles and for us is that Jesus' power to give life validates the claims that he's made, both about others and about himself. It makes all of the statements of Jesus have punch when he talks about giving life or giving eternal life. That's the whole point. In particular, I want to call your attention to the fact that this gives power to Jesus' words on one particular topic. Jesus says repeatedly that there are worse things than death. He says, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. But fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. Worse things than death. You can die, but there's something worse than just dying. Or when he says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. For it's better for you to enter life lame than having both feet, both hands, be cast into the eternal fire. Worse things than death. Eternal death. Worse than physical death. Whoever causes one of these young believers in me to sin, it would be better for him. It would be better for him if a millstone was hung around his neck and he was thrown and cast into the depths of the sea and drowned. It would be better. Worse things than death. That's a death. But that death is better than what you'll suffer from the Father. So what does that mean? It means that there are worse things than death. We're all going to die. 
But we're not all going to have to face the punishment that comes from God's judgment. Someone has power over death. And he is the one that we should fear and show allegiance to. Not death, but the one who controls death. The one who can reverse death. The one who can give life. He is the one who suddenly demands our allegiance. And so Jesus' power and then the the working out of Jesus' power changes the way we think about Jesus' words. Jesus gives life. And if he can do it physically, then he can do it spiritually as well. But of course, most notable for us would be that Jesus rises triumphant from the grave. Now he foretells this in a few places. He says it specifically and sometimes in kind of vague terms. And the the scriptures often tell us that the disciples did not understand at the time what they understood later after he was risen from the dead. But at one point, Jesus cleanses the temple where he throws the money changers out. And they come to him, the the rulers of the temple, and they say, what sign do you show that you do all this? Who do you think you are? Give us some proof of your identity. And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it up. I'll resurrect it. And they have to laugh at that. Three days to build a temple. It was 46 years building this temple. And you're going to raise it in three days. And yet John says he was speaking about the temple of his body. Another occasion. Scribes and Pharisees come to him and they say, we want a sign. And Jesus says, no sign except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and nights in the heart of the earth. That's the sign, the vindicating sign, the proof that I'm going to rise from the grave and show that I've conquered death. So if you want a sign, and Jesus gave tons of signs throughout his life, but he says, watch for the one sign. It has to do with three days. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll build it up. Three days in the belly of the earth. This is the sign. But of course, if we were disciples, I think we would have missed it just like they did. The disciples seem to miss this. Until finally when Jesus is crucified and the body is taken down from the cross, there doesn't seem to be any particular interest or hope from the disciples. You have Jesus taken down by Joseph of Arimathea, who was sort of a casual disciple of Jesus, who was also a member of the Sanhedrin. He takes him and puts him in his own tomb, and he tries to tend to Jesus along with Nicodemus. But they have to hurry because it's about to be the Sabbath, which begins at dusk. So they hurry and rush, and they cover Jesus so that they can go rest for the Sabbath. And so it is that very early Sunday morning, after a whole day has passed, some of the women come to the tomb. I believe that what's happening is they want to do a better job taking care of Jesus' body. Because, let's be honest, the women are going to do a better job than the men, right? Taking care of Jesus' body. Okay. I, I say that as somebody who's trying to take care of the house while Sarah's out of town. Okay. They're coming to try to, to make this the way it should be with the spices and the different things that were a part of the burial. But they're wondering who's going to remove the stone for them. So they come to the tomb. And again, it's sort of like this. Uh, I, this is obviously a recreation. But you have a giant stone in front of the tomb that has to be moved. And they come, 
And as they're wondering about that, they come and they find the stone moved away. And instead of a sealed tomb, they see men there. Angels who say to them, we know you're seeking Jesus, but he's not here. He is risen. Now, they weren't expecting this because they immediately rush away to tell the others. And then some of the others here, and they don't believe, but Peter and John, they run to the tomb. They say, we got to see this. we got to figure this out. And John tells us in his gospel he actually beat him. This is a little bit of ancient humble bragging. Okay? Actually beat him to the tomb, but I waited for it. And they go in, they see, they see the grave clothes light up in a certain place, light out here, folded up here, and the, the part over the head in a certain place. But they're mystified. This was not what they were expecting. They did not expect to come to the tomb and see it empty. They came to, expected to come to the tomb and see their dead Savior there, and they don't. And suddenly all kinds of people start seeing Jesus. Here's Mary Magdalene. She sees Jesus in the garden near the tomb. Here are two disciples, like we read about in Zach's reading, that are on the road to Emmaus, and they see him. Then he appears to the 11 because Thomas isn't there, or I guess the 10, and Thomas isn't there. And then he appears when Thomas is there. And they begin to, when, when they see Jesus, it's, it's usually the same kind of process where they want to look at him and they want to examine his hands and they want to see that he is actually not a spirit. Because I guess they think they might be seeing a ghost. They might be afraid that they're imagining this, but they watch him eat. And several of the resurrection appearances have to do with Jesus eating. Jesus appears to his brother James. Jesus appears to over 500 disciples at once. He appears to them while they're fishing by the sea in Galilee in the northern part of the country. And when Jesus appears, he explains, hey, this is what we were talking about the whole time. Remember all those things I said? This is what we were talking about. Remember all those prophecies from the Old Testament? This is what it was about. And the disciples start to put it together. As I was thinking through this, it's amazing to me that that's the way the story is told. The story is not told from the perspective of Jesus. This is what it was like to die, and then I went through this, and I went here, and then I had to do this, and I had to fight with Satan or whatever happened. I don't know all the dimensions of that. We wouldn't understand that, would we? All we know is this is what it looked like. We saw him die, we saw him put in the grave, and we saw the grave empty, and we saw him talking to us again, eating food, coming to us, explaining to us, and then ascending into heaven. The resurrection of Jesus is the most significant event in the history of humanity. Jesus lived and died and lived again to never die. He's still alive. Suddenly, all his promises and claims are validated. And suddenly, because of what Jesus promised, there is the possibility that other people can live forever too. That man won't be enslaved to death and to the fear of death. And I will say this. If we walked with Jesus and we saw what they saw, I firmly believe that we would do what they did. Which is, they were convinced and began to preach about what they had seen. They became witnesses of his resurrection. And the testimony that these men gave very often got them into trouble. Arrested or beaten or killed or exiled. And yet they don't change their story and they don't disagree with one another. 
because something has changed in them from the time when they were so concerned about making their own name for themselves. And I believe there is only one explanation for that that holds water, that they actually did see the resurrected Christ. If we walked with Jesus, we would notice that he rose triumphant from the grave. That would stick out to us. In fact, it would change us. So I want us to think for just a moment about how does this change you and me? And the first thing I want to say is because we know Jesus has conquered death, we can live without fear. The Hebrew writer says that Jesus destroyed the one who had power over death and that through his death, he has delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. We don't have to be afraid of death anymore. Jesus has conquered it. And he gives that victory to everyone who believes in him. The issue with death is not whether or not Jesus conquered it. The issue with death is how much we believe that he would be willing to give that victory to me. The issue is about my trust in him. So what that means is, if Jesus conquered death, then I can face my own death with confidence. I know it's coming. I don't know when. But I know that I can be confident if I trust in Jesus and the life that I can have in his name. I know that death is not the end of me in the same way that it wasn't the end of Jesus. It also means that I can help other people face death with confidence. I don't know if you've had a lot of experiences like this. I suspect we all have at one point or another in our lives where we deal with people who are facing death. And it is such a difficult thing when we cannot give hope to someone and such an empowering thing when we can say, don't worry, this is not the end. It means that I can help other people live without fear. That when we grieve, I can help other people grieve, not as others who have no hope, but as people who know this is not the end. Fear doesn't have to dominate me because I don't have to fear what Jesus has already conquered. Second, we can live with an eternal perspective. Suddenly, if this is our perspective, things shift for us. We don't fear those who kill the body. We fear the one who can destroy both body and soul. And Jesus' defeat of death means that I don't want to ever compromise with the powers that are in charge of this world. I don't want to live like the world. I don't want to think like the world because I'm going to go see Jesus someday and I'm going to purify myself as he is pure. It means that my existence here on earth is a small fraction of my life. Can I say that again? My existence here on earth is a small fraction of my life. So any hardship I suffer now is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. There's a different perspective there, isn't there? There is, as Paul says, an eternal weight of glory because we don't look at the things that are seen but at the things that are not seen. Have you considered 
that someday all of the political controversies that are going on right now and all of the sports teams that you root for right now and all of the exciting things that are going on, books and movies and things, all the words that are said on the Internet, that all of those very shortly aren't going to matter at all. That someday, maybe soon, maybe in a few years, words are going to be said over you, and people will weep over you, and then you will go back to the dust from which you were made. And none of these things that have so consumed our lives will matter. And we won't be concerned in those moments as we approach our death about whether our team finally got that national championship, about whether Republicans or Democrats finally won the day for this day. What will matter then is whether or not we have a relationship with God that will carry us through into the next life. And that really will be the only thing that matters. Now, if we have that perspective, doesn't it change the way we think about the things that consume our time and energy now? Can't we see that Jesus conquering death really opens us up to what really life is? So I want to be concerned with how I'm going to spend my time after this life, when I am raised and restored and transformed. And so I'm going to live now with that view of eternity because Jesus has shown me I will live again. For many people, those who reject Jesus and the truth that he has brought, for many people, death is the end and there is no hope of any life after death. In fact, there is only a fear that when death comes, it is nothingness. We no longer exist. That is truly the end of us. And so for them, there is this relentless need to do everything I can to fill up my life because this is all there is. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But for Christians, there is no fear. And yet I want to stress, there remains a relentless need to serve Jesus and do what we can with the time that we have. Because this life is not all there is. And because someday those decisions will matter. Will you pray with me about that? Our God and Father, we thank you so much for the day that you've given us. This time that we've had to open up your word. To think about your son. The wonderful things that he's done. And the great victory that he has had over death. We're thankful, Father, that you're willing to give us that victory. That when we have this relationship with you through him. That when we are your children. We stand to inherit this great blessing of eternal life. Father, death is such a sobering part of the way that we live. I pray that you'll help us to truly process and to hold on to the incredible victory and freedom we have from death because of Jesus. I pray that you'll help us each day to live our lives showing honor to that, remembering and putting in perspective all the minutia of our days, all the small decisions that we have to make, and remember that we are truly trying to prepare ourselves for eternal life. And to remember that the decisions we make matter in that. I pray that you'll bless your people, Father. 
as we sometimes get discouraged and sometimes become fearful. I pray that you'll help us to renew ourselves in the words of Jesus and in the promises that he's brought to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. There might be someone here this morning who needs to obey the gospel, is ready to become a disciple of Jesus and have your sins forgiven, washed away by his blood. And if you're ready to take that step to be baptized into Christ, we'd love nothing more than to help you be right with God. So please come to the front right now as we stand and sing to encourage you.